as we look to the Lord together now in prayer. Now, our fathers are coming into your presence. We are coming into your presence. We're the fact that you are the sovereign one. You're in control. Whenever we're hurting, it seems like the pain and the suffering is what's in control. And then we need to recalibrate. We need to put things back in proper order, proper perspective, to know where to go, how to proceed. And there you are. So, Father, what we need now is to be able to have a clearer and clearer understanding of your majesty. You're incomparable. Suffering is not. You're incomparable. The world is not. You and you alone are God. So, Father, in these moments to come, what we're praying once again now is that you'll warm these hearts, that you engage these minds, that you can shape these wills, as again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again on Jesus' name. Amen. It was during World War II that the Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl found so much of his thoughts put together that we eventually write the book, Man's Search for Meaning. Jewish psychiatrist. I'm always amazed in psychiatry how many are Jews, what percentage are. Because it seems as though the Jewish population is forever grappling with the whole reasons for suffering and injustices in this world. Well, Viktor Frankl had even his manuscript taken from him. And the Nazis forced the prisoners, including Franco, to even give up their clothing. I had to surrender my clothes, he wrote, and in turn inherited the worn-out rags of an inmate who had, who had been sent to the gas chamber. And instead of the many pages of my manuscript, I found in the pocket of the newly acquired coat a single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book. It was the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then I pondered the question, is this a coincidence? Later, as Franco penned his thoughts in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which I know various people in the congregation have at home, he said, quote, there is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst of conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning to one's life. Grasp what he says next. Quote, He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Unquote. If you've got a why in your life as to why you live your life, you'll be able to bear up with any how. Here's the question. Is that sufficient? Or can we do even better than that? I think Job 40 and 41 helps us to be able to think that through. Because what you and I are going to find now, when you and I are dealing with hurting people like the Job's of this world, and maybe you are in that camp, 
is that they're going to make some assumptions about God, and their assumptions are basically that God is unfair. I shouldn't be going through what I'm going through. So if you this morning are trafficking with people that view what God is doing right now as being unfair, what we're going to do now is to draw out three significant points to ponder here so that if you're ministering to such a person, these chapters will equip you to minister effectively. And if you yourself are that hurting person, there's something here now you're going to be able to apply to your own personal experience. But the first comes out of verses 1 through 5 of the 40th chapter. And we're going to put it like this, that when hurting people, when they assume that God is being unfair, is that you? Ponder, first of all, the initial question posed here by the Lord. And here it comes. Because it begins with, and the Lord said to Job, pause. It's not, and Job said to the Lord. Job has been doing a lot of talking in the book of Job about suffering. God has waited. God chooses his moment. But what fascinates us at this point is that all along, Job has longed to be able to approach God. And to approach God in God's cosmic court. And to approach God in God's cosmic court to be able to be his own defense attorney and challenge God. What happened? God approaches Job. Job does not approach God. And while Job wants to approach God using legal terms, God is going to approach Job using what I'll call creational terms. Creational wisdom. Forcing Job to start looking at the creation, develop creational wisdom as it relates to his own suffering so that he understands the greatness of God, which preps him for the grace of God. Another thought. God was not required to approach Job. Job's blaming God. God could have stood aloof like humanity. But you and I know at the cross of Jesus Christ, God has approached us, sent Jesus to die for our sins. We did not approach God. Here's grace. And the greatness of God reveals the grace of God. Another point. He's referred to as capital L-O-R-D. That is the relational, that is the covenantal name for God. That name was used in the opening chapters, but then basically disappeared in all the conversations, one exception in the way in which Job's counselors guided him. But now that name reappears, and God is saying, I'm relational, Job. While you couldn't approach me, I approach you. That's grace. And the Lord said to Job, and here comes the question, that initial question, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And now, he's been listening, God has, to Job. And Job has been finding fault with God. God listens in, you see. But now, because the others, the other counselors, have been referring to the Sovereign One as something other than Lord, he now adopts their terms, 
Over 100 times he's been referenced as, as God in terms of the Hebrew words Elohim or Eloah, El or Shaddai. So now temporarily he says, okay, you view me as the Almighty. Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Job, are you ready to contend? You want a cosmic argument? He who argues with God, let him answer it. You can almost feel the tension rising within Job's soul at this point. What are you going to do when you've got questions for God and God in turn poses questions to you? Standing next to my sister last weekend, we were in a conversation and um, she's a very gracious, elegant woman. And I was recalling a time where Marianne and I were clearing out a lot of the furniture in my parents' house, who they're home now with Jesus. And I was struck with, there was, a, there was a plaque that was attached magnetically to the refrigerator and represented a very hard day that my parents had experienced in their own health situation. And the plaque read as follows. I had a million questions to ask God. But when I met him, they all fled my mind. And it didn't seem to matter. Job has got a lot of questions to ask God. The irony is, God has got a lot of questions now to ask Job. And the question is, what's the purpose of the question? You have alluded to the fact that uh, you have viewed me, basically, as treating you unfairly. Okay, then. Let's talk. But is Job ready to talk? Because as you see now, in the next verse, the Lord answered, and he picks up, L-O-R-D, rather than the Almighty. He now admits the fact that God is relational here. Which you and I need to understand very clearly in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sufferings. This is good, Job. The Lord, Job answered the Lord and said, and he uses a visual word, behold. But look at what, what has just happened. Rather than Job approaching God, God has approached Job. And Job now, as he's beginning to sense the greatness of God, he feels simultaneously the smallness of his own stature when he says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? You can almost hear him taking a deep breath at this point as he is about to say, I lay my hand on my mouth a lot of people in this world need to learn to do. I've spoken once. I will not answer. Twice. I'll proceed no further. It was in James 3.8 where James had written that no human being can tame the tongue. And we have been dealing with some untamed tongues here in the counseling and the response of Joe. Shortly after being elected to the presidency, Calvin Coolidge arrived in Washington, D.C. 
he was known, nicknamed as Silent Cal. He was invited to attend a large dinner, found himself next to a prominent socialist, socialite who kept up a steady stream of what he viewed as meaningless conversation. He never replied. So finally, this talkative socialite leaned over and then confided to the president-elect that, well, she had made a wager. She had made a wager that she would be able to get more than two words out of his mouth. Coolidge immediately answered, You lose. Now, at this point, then, Job wants to understand the fact that God wins. I'm of small account. He has now developed humility, which was absolutely necessary because there seemed to be a growing sense of a prideful disposition in the way in which Job was revealing his heart to his counselors. You've got to be humble to process God's word and apply them to your life. I'm of small account, he says to the sovereign one. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I won't answer. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. God has now silenced Job. Now, what we've noticed throughout the book of Job is that there is a silencing that takes place. Satan is silenced. And then the counselors, one by one, are silenced. Now, Job is silenced. And there is one left to speak. And that's God. Listen for God's voice. So now you're processing that initial question, and maybe you have struggled with fairness versus unfairness in your own personal experience. Well, here's God now, and in his grace, he approaches Job. Job doesn't approach God. Now you're ready then for this next point to ponder. But second of all, I want you to notice here the personal challenge issued by the Lord. It begins with the initial question posed by the Lord. Then, second of all, the personal challenge issued by the Lord. He, he first of all, then offered the, que- the question, and now then, here comes the challenge, and the Lord. Notice that it is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now, that's fasting. Because back in chapter 37, and the last of the counselors spoke of that point when God would perhaps respond to Job out of the whirlwind. And if you have ever spent time in the Middle East, as I have, what you're going to find is that off the distance you can see a storm coming your way. Storms have a way of making us reflective, like those thunderstorms of these past days. Pause. Think. Ponder. The Lord answered Job out of the storm, out of the whirlwind. It's got his attention. And then he says, dress for for action like a man. Job would like to dress for success. God says, dress for action, or literally from the Hebrew here, gird up your loins like a man. Job has questions for God. Well, God's got questions for Job. 
I will question you. And you make it known to me. Job wants God to make something known to Job. Hmm. Well, now, God's got something here where he wants Job to make things known to God. But the gist of it is verse 8. Would you even, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? As if he is saying, Job, all along you've been finding fault with me. I've been listening in to your conversations. Here's the issue, Job. In the process of you finding fault with me, have you ever considered my grace? I'm approaching you. I care about you. Now, the issue here is this. Job has no case to present before God. God is presenting his case to Job. And in the process of all this, at this point now, you're about to see not only the power of God at work, but the justice of God revealed. Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder like a voice, a voice like his? And you're pondering the power of God. You're pondering the word of God. And then God says in verse 10, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. What's God saying? He's saying, Job, do you think you can run this for universe? Job, do you have the strength to be able to judge sinners? Okay then, Job, start judging them. But in the meantime, check out 13 and 14. Hide them all in the dust. Bind their faces in the world below. And then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. What God is saying at this point then is that, Job, take up the challenge and see whether or not you really want to be able to operate on the basis of my justice, or do you want to operate on the basis of my grace, which is the biggest issue of the hour for people throughout this entire world. They want social justice. They want divine justice. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, what we find is sovereign grace. So now here we find that God then is offering Job the opportunity to explore the universe. And God then is giving him a universal tour of all that God himself has created. And we saw that in the, following, in the prior cha chapters. It was on a Christmas Eve. It was Apollo 8. We illustrated a few weeks ago from Apollo 11. But what about Apollo 8? Frank Borman... James Lavelle, William Anders, they send a message back to the people on earth. And the message comes from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 10. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, intoned Anders, in Apollo 8's unannounced broadcast as the astronauts with the TV camera flashing back to this incredible scene of the deeply shadowed lunar landscape. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then Frank Borman closed that broadcast with these words, Good night. He would go on to say, Merry Christmas. And God bless all of you.
upon the good earth. And as I read those statements, I thought about God bless, which is a key word throughout the book of Genesis. And Job lives in the time period of Genesis. And furthermore, he called it the good earth, and God had said, it is good, it is good, it is good, repeatedly. And what astounds us is that what God is saying at this point, through the form of a challenge, Job, do you think you can administrate this universe? How will you be able to address human suffering if you can't administrate this universe? What do you do with all this? How do you handle the challenge that comes your way? It was a challenge that a pastor in the days of Frederick the Great had to deal with. Frederick the Great, we're told, needed a new court chaplain. So he decided to base his selection on the way in which applicants would deliver an extemporaneous message. So the text, his text, in a sealed envelope was to be handed to each applicant as they entered the pulpit. So in church, on that appointed day, the courtier handed one of the pastors, ministers, a sealed envelope, and then opening it, he gasped. The minister found that it was a blank sheet of paper. What are you going to do? Well, he held up one side and then said, People, here is nothing. Then he held up the other side and added, and here is nothing. And people, it was out of nothing that God created the world. And then he delivered extemporaneously, he delivered an exposition of the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. We've said it before. If God can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad. What he seems to be implying at this point is that, Job, you've been treating me badly. Job, if I can create something out of nothing, I can create something good out of something bad. Do you have that capacity, Job? Are you able to administrate this universe? Why, you can't even handle subduing the politicians of this world. How can you possibly subdue then the suffering that is found in this world? Now, Job's on the ropes. You can almost feel him backing off at this point. God is making his point. Job is now having to process everything that he has had to say about God in relationship to suffering. But God's not done yet. You saw the initial question posed by the Lord in 1 through 5. You then moved to the personal challenge issued by the Lord in 6 to 14. But now, thirdly, and this is good, notice with me the recreational wisdom displayed by the Lord beginning in verse 15 all the way through chapter 41. And all I want to do is to draw up two examples of God's creational wisdom. So that when you are in a conversation with a hurting person who's talking about climate change, when you're talking to a person who wants to engage in discussions about the environment, look for a way to be able to move from creation to new creation thinking. 
and what it means to be a new creation in Christ. But you've got to start with the creation to get to the new creation. And if the creation has fallen, how do you get to become a new creation person based upon God's greatness revealed in God's grace? Oh, no. So here's what God does for Job. He chooses two significant illustrations, examples of what I'll call creational wisdom that would have been very front and center in the day in which Job lived. When now God says, okay, Exhibit A, behemoth. Behold, behemoth. And you say, what on earth is a behemoth? Well, look very carefully at this text. Ponder the ecosystem. Examine the environment. And lo and behold, what seems to be evident to us at this point is that he is referencing a hippopotamus. Behold, behemoth, take a good hard look, and then notice the connection God makes, which I made, as I made you. You're going to have to move from creational to new creational ministry in the way in which you minister to people's lives. So you got a hurting person on your hand? But they are old creation in their mindset. You've got to inch them towards new creational thinking, a new creation person, but acknowledging all the aspects of being a fallen creation. So here now, God brilliantly takes into account the environment, takes into account the ecology, takes into account all the issues before Job, which I made in Job. As I made you, he makes it personal. Now, when you're ministering, bring in then creational wisdom. In a day and age where people are talking climate change, they're talking about the environment, but try to find a movement from creation to new creational ministry as you deal with a hurting person. He does another behold on you. Behold. His strength, he's back to that hippopotamus. His strength is his loins and his power in the muscle of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. And what fascinates me, first of all, obviously he's using poetic language. But second of all, what interests us furthermore is that he is offering, even at this stage in, in ancient history, incredible insight into anatomy. If you've ever studied anatomy, you're taken up then with the way in which God describes things, even if he chooses to do so poetically. Now you're thinking. Now you're pondering. And you've got to get back to that person who's hurting. Dr. Paul Brand did. He was pondering the design of the hand. He, who was a surgeon and dealt with hand surgery, said, I could fill a room with volumes of surgical texts that describe operations people have devised for the human hand. Different ways to rearrange tendons, muscles, joints, thousands of operations. But I don't know of a single operation anyone has devised that has succeeded in improving a normal hand. It's beautiful. All the techniques are to correct the deviance. 
the one hand in a hundred that is not functioning as God designed. There is no way to improve on the hand that he gave us. I concur with Isaac Newton who said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. Quote, unquote. Not what you do. You take then the biology of this world, make it personal as Dr. Brand just did, and then you deal with the hurting person at this point. And you want to inch them from old creation thinking to new creational living. All things become new when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But you say to me at this point, Gary, uh, okay, behemoth. But what about that Leviathan? I'm glad you asked. Take a look at chapter 41, verse 1. Because God, now I'm inching forward at this point, jumping into chapter 41, verse 1, God is still posing the questions here. And he poses the question, he says, can you draw out a Leviathan with a fish hook? And all you fishermen, you really don't want to draw out Leviathan with a fish hook. Because Leviathan most likely is a crocodile. Or press down his tongue with a cord. Because this is the sort of thing that was done when you were trying to deal with a crocodile in that time period. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Question, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you or take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? On and on he goes with his questions. And now what God has done is that he has introduced Job to the fact that God is the creator. God is sovereign. The world is not. God is sovereign. Suffering is not. G.K. Chesterton. He once said, it saddened him when he heard people say, the day will soon come when communicating with the distant stars will seem an ordinary thing. Such an ordinary thing as answering a telephone. What he said he would love to hear, the day will soon come when answering the phone will seem to be as wonderful a thing as communicating with the distant stars. And what he was saying in essence was, don't lose your sense of wonder. And my concern is, and it's yours as well, is that people are losing their sense of wonder regarding the greatness of God, regarding who he is, regarding the fact that he is sovereign over this entire universe. And if he can do that universally, can't he deal with you personally and minister to you at your point of need? You need a fresh encounter, what God seems to be saying, a fresh encounter with God's greatness as it leads now to God's grace. You do that. And now you come back to Viktor Frankl. Okay, so what do you do with him? He's Jewish. He's been in Auschwitz. If we want to talk about human suffering, this is it to the extreme. He's wrestling with, how do I understand suffering in this world? God has approached him. God has allowed him, when he puts on these used clothes, to find that there's a Jewish Shema found in the coat pocket. So he writes, There is nothing in the world that could so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning to one's life. And then, quote, 
He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Can we do better than that? Here's our response. In the book of Job, there is no explanation of human suffering. What there is, is a revelation of God's sovereignty. Job has been looking for an explanation. God provides him with a revelation. Job wants to approach God on Job's terms. God approaches Job on God's terms. Never once does God, in the book of Job, either ask or answer the question why. Because the question is not why. The question is who. And I would say to the Victor Frankels of this world, who would argue, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. I would say, when you have the who to live for, God, and you're able to live for him based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then you're going to be able to handle the hows, including the sufferings of this world. Because the most important question of this world is not why, but who. And when you get your who right, you've got your God right. And when you've got your God right, greatness and grace come together as we manage our sufferings in preparation for the time we stand before God. Let's stand together. We need creational wisdom. We need to be able to move from old creational thinking to have a new creational experience. Everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old things pass away. All becomes new. Eventually that will include the body. But we live, we live suspended between the now and the not yet. But we've got to identify very clearly who we live for. It is you, our Lord. And when we are focused upon you, Everything, including suffering, is put in its proper perspective because greatness is found in who you are and grace is found in what you provide. May each one here have a greater sense of who you are and experience the grace that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And for this, Father, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.